0: We are continuing our study in the book of Acts. This will be our third and final look at Acts 2, the famous chapter of Pentecost. Um, We'll begin at verse 41 and go to verse 47. As a parent, you you hear a common question from your kids, and I'm not, you know, a historian. We have quite a few historians in our congregation. But uh, I know enough history to know this is not the correct way to say it, but here's how they say it. Back then, and then comes the question, did they do it this way? And I think to myself, there is no like back then. Like there's a lot of back thens. But for a child, it could be like, you know, the Old West. It could be the Dark Ages. It could be like Bible t- you know, early, even Bible times. See, I almost did it. Earlier Bible times, mid-Bible times. It could be like the 1940s. It could be my childhood. Like back then, it just blends together. And I think sometimes when we come to this passage, we treat it like that. We are coming to one of those passages for a preacher that is very daunting, because I fall so far short of what this proposes and what we long to have, and that is the famous passage in Acts 2 where the church is coming together and operating like a church might operate. It's overwhelming, it's, it's amazing, and so often we just say the early church, back then. Right, that's become sort of a refrain. Our hope this morning as we read this passage is that we would freshly discover what's going on in this text and maybe see it revived in the present and in the future. Just to kind of remind ourselves of what's happening in Acts 2. It begins with the 120 gathered, including the 12 apostles. And the Holy Spirit comes with the sound of wind and the visual effects of fire and the, and the gift of tongues, to speak languages. And those 120, when that happened, were, were surrounded by a, a, just a great crowd of people. They were there for the Pentecost uh, festival. And when this happened, Peter begins to preach, as did the 120, they translated for Peter, and it's the famous sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter two, where he tells them, you are responsible for Jesus of Nazareth's death. He was Jesus, he was God, he was born, lived a you know, life, he did mighty works, and, and you killed him. But he rose again, and he's ascended into heaven. And, and, and in that sermon, they just end by saying, what must we do? And we talked about that last week. What must we do? They were cut to the core. And he tells them, repent, be baptized, and, be, and be, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. So our passage now takes right on from what happened right after that point, starting in Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and of the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as, they had, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we see this story in your word. We believe it's true. Holy Spirit, we pray that that might happen again, and even more so. We know that you are the same spirit who worked in their hearts, and our prayer is this morning you'd work in this congregation to begin the process of opening our hearts to loving community and loving you more through the community. I pray that you would help us to this end. Amen. The movie Awakenings is a 1990 movie. I've talked about it before. Uh, it had a pretty profound impact. I was pretty young, but um, it's a true story. It has Robin Williams and Robert De Niro, so it's a, it has a great cast. Robin Williams plays uh, Dr. Sayer. He works at an institution um, where the patients are, have debilitating illness. Kind of, a, they're catatonic. They're somewhat in a vegetative state. And, and there's more than just those patients, but that's the nature of the hospital. But he was focusing on those patients who had apparently received, they'd, I guess it was encephalitis, 1917 to 1928, the epidemic, sweeped through this community, and they were left now in this state of being catatonic. And it's kind of a depressing beginning to a movie. You, you see the state, and you see it, and, and he is passionate about healing them. And one of the interesting things, I remember the movie, he threw like a ball falls out of his hand, a tennis ball. I don't even know, was he dribbling it? And one of the patients just grabs the ball, and he realizes, okay, this is interesting. And then I think there was a pin, and then some responded to music, and some responded to touch, and he began to realize there was hope for these patients. And he began studying, and he came across a drug that was used for Parkinson's, and he began to administer it to these patients this population of patients, of which Robert De Niro was one, and they begin to get better. In fact, they not only were able to start to stand and talk and just become fully functioning, Robert De Niro's character, this is a true story, was the first to be healed, and he began to fall in love with a, with a woman who's like a daughter of one of the doctors. So he starts to have a romantic relationship in his healing. He also begins to ask the hospital, can I move out? And they begin having this discussion, and he eventually moves into like his own place off site, and they keep in touch. And it's a very amazing picture of this longing to be healthy and to be healed. When most of the people who would come into that setting would say, "This is the new normal. This is the way it's going to be." And the reason that came to mind is, I think we come to passages like this and we see them, and we say. Oh, that would be amazing. Almost like it's a fairy tale. But aren't we to long for this kind of reviving? Aren't we to long that our church, our, our people, would feel alive and begin to come together in community like this? Um, that's the goal, I think, of, of the new heavens and the new earth. And we know the Holy Spirit is pouring into us now. And I would just say my hope as we look at this passage would be that we would begin to have hope that there's more that we could actually grow in our longing to be in community, and gospel community. Um, so the concept today, the theme is the gospel frees us to embrace this community, to be awakened from our stupor. And we're going to look at a few things to, to unpack that. And I'm just going to tell you, this is a hard passage. And so good luck, right? Everyone gets to kind of look down. Every time I glance at you, you can look down like, don't talk to me. I'm coming for you. So, number one, the premise that we're gonna talk about is you are made for community. Thinking about the opening illustration, you're made to be more than the, 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 where they were. And the doctor who was trying to help them is really a picture of Jesus who's saying, you are made for more, you are made for community. And we know this. We know that we're made for community, but there's this tension, there's this irony in how we go about community, right? For example, Everyone in here would agree that social media has both really positive things, right? What's the point behind social media? Community, right? Being involved with each other's lives, knowing what's happening with people that we used to know well or we're getting to know, right? It's community-based. But what do we do when we're at dinner, right? You're like, at dinner, and you see a commercial about dinner, by the way. They're always laughing and passing food. But most of our dinners, we're like staring at our phone now, doing our social media, So you can see the irony sometimes in community with the world is it has this kind of back and forth. In some sense, community is beautiful, but in other ways, we are isolated. We're sort of alone, and it's a strange um, paradox because we want to be with people, but we sort of don't want to be known too much, right? Remember something we've been talking about is that Acts 2 is a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Remember at the Tower of Babel, you had all of these people building this tower, and they had communication, and so God confused their language. And I'm fascinated because you know they probably could have figured it out, right? Like humans are smart, but there is something about the confusion of language that creates a desire to be apart from each other. And I think when you really start to press into that, the fall—that is what happened in the garden—our original sin is leads to autonomy. We want to be in charge, we want to be in control. And the moment there's a person that's a little bit different, it creates schism, it creates separation. And so at Babel, you had people, just the outflow of that expression moving apart from each other. But by the time you get to Acts 2, that's being corrected. And I'll talk about that just in, well, let me me unpack what happened. Remember, um, all of these people have come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. They're from all these tribes, all, I mean, all these nations, but they're Jewish, either by com- conversion or by birth. They speak many languages. And it's just an interesting thought that they've come to this celebration and they can't communicate. Now, a lot of them are Galileans. A lot of them are also from Jerusalem, which is in the south, right? The, and they can speak their language, but a lot of them cannot speak the language. And so when the Holy Spirit shows up, he gives them language and they can speak and they can hear the gospel presentation. And it reverses babel, right? And so here they are able to hear the gospel presentation and begin to move toward community. But I'm struck by the fact that before the Holy Spirit shows up, they were like already together in a type of community, right? I was thinking about how to illustrate this. Yesterday, no, it's Friday. So I'm an OU grad. So just for those of you that don't know, I love OSU, but I don't get that little fluttering in my heart that most of you get. So I almost forget when home games are. I apologize. It's Friday. By Saturday I know, but I'm driving down Country Club and I come to 6th Street, which is Highway 51 and Country Club, and I'm pretty sure every RV in the state of Oklahoma was driving into town at that moment. And they were driving to that Walmart and all, and it just felt like festive. Like I wanted to be a part, I wanted to, and I later got back out and I saw them all parked and they're getting out and they're communicating with each other and it's festive. Like it's game day, right? We are people who love to come together around a cause. So point number one is what creates this paragraph in chapter two is we long to have community, but it has to be centered around something. It has to be centered on a particular thing. And it was when these people, in this grouping of thousands and thousands of people hearing Peter's sermon, 3,000 of them were told, they all were told this, but 3,000 understood that they were actually, in a way, responsible for the death of Jesus. But, more importantly, they were invited in to his family through repentance and baptism. And that's what community, that's what creates this need for community, this longing for community for them. They wanted to come in and be a part of this, of this process. Um, I think we often give ourselves a bad rap. Like, would we do this today? Would we, like, you know, there's 100 people here right now. Let's say there was 120 there. We know that. I would have said 120 here and now, but I can kind of tell that's just not true right now. I've learned. So it's 100, maybe 110 There's maybe 10 people in the back. What if yesterday at that game, you know, it rained? Remember, how many of you were there when it rained? Like, was that? It's awkward. Like, when there's a rain delay and that you're in, like, a mass situation. Um, Imagine if, like, over the loudspeaker, rather than, like, talking about what to do with the storm, the gospel started being presented. And 3,000 of those people freshly came to Christ right, and, let, and they started coming like this morning into, into this area, like right here, I think we would begin to be excited, right? We would begin to say like, come in, and, 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 and we'd begin teaching and praying with them and telling them about Jesus. So I just wanna give us a little bit of credibility that I think we would be revived and excited by that. The early church already was meeting, already were praying, the 120, and now 3,000 come in, and it's like all hands on deck, Let's get together. Let's have community. Now, the question for us might be, how could that happen nowadays, right? What is it that happened then that we need to freshly understand so that now, short of that a miracle happening, which we would pray would happen, 3,000 or more, what, what is it that happened um, in their lives that really did make them long to be together? And I think the answer is this idea that Peter tells them, you need to be Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's not a second thing. That's not some of you. That's not 3,000 will be baptized and the lucky few will receive the Holy Spirit. It's you will be baptized and you will receive the the Holy Spirit. When you go back to the Old Testament and you read the prophets, especially like Isaiah in chapters like 35 and 41, prophesying that one day the Spirit will be poured out like water, that was fulfilled at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, dwells in you. Now, so many of us wonder, why don't we feel it more? Because we've sort of been tra- t- trained and, and to think of it as more of a feeling or an energy, But what the Spirit is doing in your soul is applying all of the benefits of Christ freshly for you. It's the spirit of adoption, right? I want to look at um, Galatians chapter 5 and just try to understand a little bit of what was sparking in them. Paul says this to the Galatians The story of the Galatians is they had come to Christ years after Pentecost. They are in Asia Minor, they are mostly Gentiles, so they are way down the line from this event. But Paul preached Christ crucified, and they believed, and they received the Spirit. In chapter three, Paul even says, remember you received the Spirit? Are you now trying to perfect yourself by the flesh? But in chapter five, he says this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So the point I want to draw from that is this. As a human being, you have two options. To live as a slave to law or to live with the Spirit. Those are your options. The problem for Christians is often what we're doing, even though we have received the Spirit, is we're returning again to the slavery of law. Let me try to illustrate that. It's a very confusing thing. Law is an interesting word, and it trips us up. The content of law is glorious. God's character, right, is glorious. It's the law-keeping that becomes the problem. This morning, I was driving past the Hatfields. Their neighbor is a policeman, and I noticed not long, he was backing out, so I went ahead and went, and not long after that, he's behind me. And I don't really know him as well as they know him, so I'm, not think, I'm pretty sure he would write me a ticket if I did something wrong. He was behind me all the way till I turned into the church. Guess what speed I went? I went 40 miles an hour, the speed limit. The law says to go 40 miles an hour. Why? Because people that are smarter than me have assessed the road conditions, they know the conditions of cars, they know how many lights, and they've made the decision. And my job is to go 40 miles an hour. But do you think that's what I was thinking? What law, what, what commandment is that based on? Love your neighbor, right? I'm loving my neighbor by operating my vehicle safely. That's me keeping the law. But that's not what I was doing. I was going 40, really looking at my speedometer way too many times, then looking in my rearview mirror because I was afraid of being a transgressor of the law. I don't want to get pulled over. I don't want a ticket. I already had my mind like That's like 250 bucks. And this guy might be cranky. So, that's law-keeping. Now, what if that policeman had turned off into a neighborhood? What what, what might have been the temptation? Let's go 45. I'm free. Let's go 50. How many of you like to go about five miles per hour over? Now, what's funny about those of us that do that is it's a law-breaking, but it's still based on the law. If someone said, I go 45 because that's what they should have done, on 19th Street. No, because if they raise it to 45, you're gonna go 50. You're gonna always go the five over or the 10 over because there's something about breaking the law that gives you some kind of feeling. And there's something about trying to keep the law that gives you another feeling. Both are bad. In Galatians, Paul says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The point is this, the Holy Spirit comes to set you free. Are you free? I mentioned last week Jubilee. It's fascinating. Again, Leviticus 25. There's a short few verses on the Sabbath there. Of course, there are many other places that talk about the Sabbath. And we believe the Sabbath is a gift from God. But then right after that, he spends a lot of verses on Jubilee. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then... You shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Celebration, revival. Why? Because all of the things you've done in the last 49 years have been removed all of the dumb mistakes about land sales you made. You, you shouldn't have done it, but you sold the land, and you didn't mean to, but you became a servant, and you didn't, things didn't go, and now it's being erased, and there's a celebration. You are free. And that's exactly what we're seeing in Pentecost. The irony is this. As focused on the law that the Jews thought they were, I mentioned this last week, there is not one recorded event of Jubilee ever celebrated. It never happened. And now in Pentecost, whether that's the meaning of Pentecost or not, it is 50 days after the Passover, but it has a feel of this release of the Spirit in a new community celebrating and we're being revived. So what does that look like for us? Do you want freedom? Is that a desire of yours? If so, then you will love the community. Why? Why? because the reasons we don't like community are law-keeping reasons. Uh, There's a man named Stanley Voke who wrote a little book called Personal Revival, and he wrote it like in the 80s. He was a pastor in the late 70s, early 80s in Europe, and as a pastor in his 40s or 50s, he realized he was dry, and his faith had really become non-existent, and the gospel became fresh for him and he writes this book about it, and it's, it's average, actually, but the content is amazing because he talks about the freedom. And one of his chapters says the end of the struggle, and he quotes from chapter 10:4 of Romans, where my version says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. But there's another version that says, Christ is the end of the struggle for righteousness. The point is this, we struggle to be righteous. Everyone in this room struggles to be righteous. Most of you, it's not religious. Now let's talk about the religious laws you're keeping. We all do this a little bit. We come to church. We kind of feel bad when we don't. Maybe it's I need to be involved in a Bible study. Maybe it has things to do with drinking or, or partying or what you do on, on the Internet. There's a lot of ways religiously and rightfully you have guidelines. The question is, are those things giving you the feeling of righteousness, I'm right because of these things. But move into the social realm. Stanley gives you gives four areas he talks about. Uh, one is the area of appearance. We struggle for the rightness of appearance. One might be the struggle for our, our attainment, what you have. Right, your reputation would be a third. If you start to think about those things, like when do I feel unsettled, and you start to apply that to community, why don't I have people to my house? It's got to look a certain way. I need, I need people to walk in and approve of my decor and the cleanliness and the food that's in the oven, or I feel less than, and I don't want to be less than that. So I just don't do it. That's an example of law keeping hurting community, right? There's other things. Maybe it's, I'm going to be so busy because attainment is so important, getting things. I'm going to say so busy, there's not even a margin for me to welcome someone else into my life. What would happen if we begin to actually believe the freedom that, that the Holy Spirit has given us? What would, what would that begin to actually look like in our community, that we would want to be with each other? That we want to spend time together? What would it do... If the Holy Spirit set you free to your view of Jesus, like, do you like Jesus? Of course, if you're a Christian, you love Jesus. But do you like Jesus? Like, do you really want to spend time with him? I'm afraid that sometimes we talk about how in heaven we'll spend eternity with Jesus, and I'm afraid some of us go, what's that going to be like? And if we're honest, part of it's because we wonder, does he approve of us? Or is, are we just sort of just kind of average to him? I've, I've mentioned this before, but it's, it really struck me, reading the letters of C.S. Lewis, the letter where this, the child's mother writes to Lewis for the child. Lewis always replied to the letters. And it says this question about Aslan. Remember, Aslan is the, li- the Christ figure, the lion from the Chronicles of Narnia. And when you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you love it when Aslan shows up. You want Aslan in every scene. You want to hold his mane. You want to talk to him. You love him. And he loves you. And this child confesses to Lewis or to his mother, I think I love Aslan more than Jesus. And so the mom writes to Lewis. And Lewis writes a great response letter with like three different points. But one of the better points I felt like was when he just simply says, Tell your son that more than likely the things he loves about Aslan. He actually loves about Jesus. If we could see the delight in the eyes of our Savior, he is a man. He is real, and he loves you. And he made you, and he rescued you. And if you could just understand his delight in you, then I think we would do what they do and want to be in a community that helps us get as close as we can this side of heaven, right? You can't get closer to Jesus, this side of heaven, without community. There is room for your private faith, no doubt. You have to have private one-on-one with Jesus, right, in your prayer closet, he tells us in in scripture. But if you're not in community, and if your faith with Jesus doesn't drive you to community, you might begin to ask yourself, do I love Jesus? Or am I playing a game? So last point, we're just gonna look at four or five areas from this paragraph that seem something that we need to keep embracing today. In each of these areas, I wanna say if you're a law keeper, they're gonna wear you out. I've gotta do this thing. If you're set free, if the tethers to the law have been cut and you are revived because of the righteousness of Christ, then these will become a joy. Let's look at the the five things. Number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Teaching. Are you teachable? Like, do you like to learn things, or do you kind of have it all figured out? This community comes to know Jesus and believes in him, and they become devoted to the teaching. They don't just become familiar with Scripture, though they do. They don't just study systematic theology. They begin to, like, eat it. Remember the end of, like, Luther, when Luther translates the, uh, the Bible into German, and his benefactor gets the first copy in his own language, and there's this great scene of him just kind of quivering, Do you like the Bible or do you read it and it's pointing its finger at you? If you are in Christ and you're adopted by the Holy Spirit, it's all joy and beauty. Read it again, read it again. When you come to a passage and you feel that finger pointing at you, recognize that is the accuser. Now it convicts, it convicts you and you, but it convicts you in such a way that you feel the joy of running to his arms. If the Spirit's convicting you through Scripture, you're gonna feel the delight of repentance, right? But if it's making you feel bad about yourself and, and like God's angry, you might wanna read it again. Go back and read the passage over. Teaching, fellowship, fellowship. Are we coming together? Do we enjoy our, each other's company? Do I want to know about you? We, in our confession of sin, we, we had some interesting lines of, of um, are we entering into the messiness of each other's lives? Are we willing to be known by each other? Are we telling each other? I struggle. I struggle with that as well. And maybe we could form a small prayer group because we three seem to have this struggle. Like, are we are we fellowshipping? Right. We are. This church, by the way, is so good at talking. Excellent. I mean, really. You walk into this group. I remember the first Sunday I ever came. Like, they like each other, and not every church does. So that's a, that's, a, that's a good thing. But can we work toward fellowshipping? Getting in each other's worlds a little bit more. Breaking of bread and prayers. Um, worship. Communicating. Again, Jesus is in our community and it's in community that we get to experience Jesus. Is this our longing when we come into church? When we, when we, break this, when we eat this meal in a little bit, The Holy Spirit promises to nourish us. And one of the things that we say every week, we quote from Paul in 2 Corinthians, is we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, proclaiming the death of Jesus, what? Until he returns. I want to see him again. I want to be with him. Sometimes during the day when my kids are away, I, I walk by their rooms, and if I have to go in and turn off a light, I'm kind of rem- I'm reminded of one of my children, and I, like, I can't wait to see them again. And I love the things in their rooms. They all four have different things about what stage of life they're in. That's kind of what we are as a community. God is, Jesus is in heaven, but he has sent his spirit of adoption, and when we're in each other's presence, we get glimmers and glimpses of Jesus, right? So let's have that mindset. So, Awakening, the movie, I don't, after, after they um, are revived, do you know the end of the movie? I bet some of you that know the movie, notice I didn't give you the ending. Uh, Robert De Niro, who's the main character that's healed and has the most normal, fully lived life, begins to notice in his walking and in parts of his body, he was starting to have the symptoms return, right? And he realized, that probably the experiment wasn't forever. And so he actually has a, records a video, um, I think for his son, uh, of, of him as he's lucid, but then he eventually goes all the way back to that state he was in when the doctor met him, as do all of the other patients. And I just, the reason I'm thinking of that is this, the spirit comes and revives the church and they wake up And it's beautiful, but the farther we move from the Spirit, the more we're going to just trip right back into our old patterns and our old ways. And in Galatians 3, again, one of my favorite places in all the Bible, I I quote it every third sermon, so you might as well memorize it. Paul just says, "Oh, foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? "'It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified.'" Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? There is so much in that question because so many of us would say, oh yeah, we received the Spirit, right? Like, I forgot about that part. And then how did I receive the Spirit? I guess by faith, right? And then he goes on, are you so foolish? And he, he's saying that with love. That's a loving, like, come on. He's leaning in. Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? They thought if they added to the things they did, they would be more righteous. And what Paul is saying is your righteousness, your correctness, your feeling of acceptance. Let me make this non-religious feeling for a moment. Your self-awareness, the way others think of you and all the things that go into how you think of yourself, it's all been paid. Jesus paid it on the cross. And you are now free. I, last week I used a, an illustration of a beach ball in the pool and it just shoots up. You can't keep it down. You are free. You are free to be who you are made to be. Glorious. And when you have that freedom and when you begin to go back to the gospel, remember this, this story in Acts 2 is written to Theophilus maybe 30, 40 years later, right? Maybe 50 years later. And that feels like a long, like for us, this is like 2,000 years ago. For him, it felt like an eternity. The church did not look the same. He needed that paragraph as badly as we need it. So we read this paragraph and we don't go, oh, how do I create that? We read this paragraph, Acts 2, verses 41 to 47, and we go, that same Holy Spirit is going to accomplish his work until Jesus returns. And that gives me hope. And it's going to be through community. And it's going to be hard because we are really bad at that. And I'm one, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. So let's begin to pray about how the, the walls of our separation can be broken down. But it's going to be centered on your understanding that you are free because of the work of Christ and you are adopted, and his spirit dwells in you. That's what's gonna set you free, to move into community. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we know these truths. Many, I believe most of us in this room walk with you. We are Christians. And yet Lord, we need to be reminded over and over of what took place at our baptism. At what took place before the foundation of the world when you already had our names? At what took place on the cross when our sins, past, present, and future, were nailed? What took place when the Spirit came in and revived us after opening our eyes and calling us and adopted us and who now cries out, Abba, Father, on our behalf? As we, hear, as we read in Romans 8, even when we don't know what to pray, and probably at times we don't even realize prayers happening when we're just groaning in pain. that This world is so hard. And yet the Spirit, your Holy Spirit, is interceding for us. And Father, for every person in this room who is your child, I have no doubt that this very moment was designed with much more meticulousness than any art project we've ever seen as a moment for your spirit to pour in our hearts. Revive us freshly today. Amen.